With over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the history of fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary and April Callahan. I think, Cass, that people are going to be super excited about this episode today because we've actually had quite a few listener requests for an episode on the intersection of fashion and politics. Yay! We have, April. We've had a lot of requests. And I, for one, cannot wait to delve right in. But first, I want to share something you and I are quite excited about. While excited is a bit of an understatement, I think we are thrilled. That's right. And we teased this a few weeks back, but um, we can now officially announce that we have dressed merchandise. Yay! I, for one, am wearing my dress tank top, and I love it. Me too. I'm actually wearing a dressed t-shirt, and I love it, especially because it's the full image reveal of our logo. So this wonderful image of the stunning, the very famous model Dolores from the 1910s. She's wearing a gown by the Couturier Lucille. And you can get this image and several others on either a tank top, a t-shirt, a sweatshirt, a cell phone case, a pillow, stickers, <laughs> a whole myriad of things, even baby onesies. So basically, um, if you go to the website tpublic.com backslash dress, and when I say tea, that's T-E-E, public.com backslash dressed. Um, basically, you can just click on any of those images there. And then once you open it up, you can see all the different types of products that you can get, including coffee mugs. So check it out soon. And um, if you do so, there's actually a 20% discount running for a limited time. And April and I really love our fashion history as the new black tote, but there's also stunning fashion plate of Pierre Brissode from 1913 that appears in a mug. So lots of options. And so please join April and I in proudly wearing fashion history, much like the subjects of our podcast today. Yep. And I do not think maybe, Cass, I've ever actually shared this with you, but the subject of our episode today is actually what set me off on my path to become a fashion historian. So many years ago, I happened to be reading this book by Francois Gendron. It happened to be about this very specific period of the French Revolution that's known as the Thermidorian Reaction. And surprising to me at this time was the fact that the styles of clothing that were being worn by opposing political factions kept coming up over and over again. And this was really kind of the moment that that got me started thinking about the messages that our choices of clothing send out into the world every day when we step out of our house. You have not told me about that, April, but <laughs> I would actually venture to guess that just about every fashion historian in the world has had a similar, somewhat giddy feeling when first learning about the myriads of dress in France during the 1790s. And in the words of one of our favorite fashion historians, Eileen Ribeiro, quote, at no other time in history have politics and dress been so closely entwined as during the French Revolution. So today we will investigate the political implications of both dress and fashion in the initial years of the French Revolution from 1789 to 1794. And this is really only a very short time period, only five years, but the remarkable changes in dress that occurred during this time continue to impact the manner in which we all dress today. But first, a quick caveat. We acknowledge that in the scope of an episode of dress, 
it is actually impossible to cover the convoluted and cryptic mechanizations of the French Revolution with any sort of refinement. I mean, there are people who have dedicated their entire professional lives to studying the events that took place in France in the 1790s when a disillusioned and disgruntled French populace quite literally beheaded the French monarchy. And while actually anyone associated with them, for that matter. So in light of the time that April and I do have, we will attempt to paint this picture in rather broad strokes, but with a particular emphasis on the role clothing played in the tumultuous nature of this era. Yeah, and that's important because um, we need a little, we need to flesh this out a little bit because these cursory dressed histories that sometimes I run across tend to characterize the changes that happened in the way people dressed during the revolution as this very abrupt and like a sudden break with the past, but that's not really true. Well, it is kind of fun, April, to spin the tale that women threw their corsets and men threw their breeches on the flames of the fire of the revolutions, never to return to the cumbersome and rigid confines of prior fashions again. Nope. (laughs) This narrative is utterly dramatic and it's even quite romantic, but it's not entirely true. Mm. Now is it? So (laughs) perhaps we need a little more nuance in order to fully understand exactly how and why the pendulum of fashion swung away from the extravagant silk fashions worn at the court of King Louis XVI and Queen Marie Antoinette to the dramatically simplified styles that became synonymous with democracy during the revolution. However, this simplification in dress is actually something that found its beginnings before the start of the revolution. And April, we kind of talked about this um, before, but it's kind of interesting because we've talked about this repeatedly undressed this season, but in reference to the birth of modern fashion in the early 20th centuries, people often associate modern fashion with the 1920s, but much like the French Revolution, it had its beginnings in the pre-war era. Yes. And this has always been so captivating to me that on occasion, from time to time, Fashion seems to have this ability to actually anticipate political movements and events. And it's really this sort of harbinger for things to come. And in the case of our topic today, this simplification in dress began not out of political resistance per se, but rather from the increasing simplification in dress that was a result of the popularity of Enlightenment philosophers like Jean-Jacques Rousseau during the middle of the 18th century. A pillar of the Enlightenment, the writings of Rousseau championed the innate liberty and civil rights of man. What a novel concept, April. Mm -hmm. (laughs) This was quite controversial at the time because these ideologies were in direct conflict with the concept of monarchical systems of government, which was based in this idea of a king's divine right to rule. And this model of government, it really dominated Europe during this time. Nevertheless, Rousseau's ideas on freedom and naturalism, they really resonated with many, including members of European aristocracy, such as the Queen of France herself. Right. And the popularity of Enlightenment thought seeped its way into the upper echelons of society, most notably manifesting themselves in the Queen's Hameau, the rustic retreat built for the Queen next to her Petit Trianon, her home away from the rigid confines of court light at Versailles, 
And I actually visited the Hamo last year with my mother and sister, and it's about a 20-minute walk away from Versailles, and it's absolutely enchanting. If you think about the town that Belle lives in, in uh, Disney's Beauty and the Beast, well, that's exactly <laughs> what it is. <laughs> and it, today, it's still maintained uh, much the way Marie Antoinette would have enjoyed it. It offers this serene country life existence, complete with farmhouses, beautiful gardens, ponds, and lots of adorable animals. She would have enjoyed it like this, minus all of the thousands of tourists. Plus some pink sheep, I would just yeah. like to add. <laughs> Um, But it was here that the queen, no doubt, inspired by the teachings of Rousseau, played out her sort of pastoral fantasies, including the pink sheep, and also her friends wearing dramatically simplified gowns. Um, And these gowns came to be known as the chemise à la reine, or queen, or simply, rather, as a chemise gown. And it was called this because it was very similar um, in its appearance to women's undergarments of the era that were also called chemise. So this chemise gown became increasingly popular across Europe during the 1780s, and it was said to be inspired by the dresses worn by Creole ladies of the French colony of Saint-Domingue. It was made of fine imported linen. It could also potentially be made of muslin, Uh, but these gowns were often white. They had high waists over which a colorful sash was tied, and the necklines were decorated with a series of ruffles. The sashes, along with the drawstrings at the neckline, were really only affectations used in shaping the dress to the body, putting this sort of soft, comfortable garment in direct opposition to the elaborately decorated corseted silk gowns that were worn as formal attire at the court. So they're kind of polar opposites of each other. Exactly. And Marie Antoinette was not the first to wear the chemise gown, but she can certainly be credited with increasing its popularity. She is the Queen of France, after all. And if you've listened to our Rose Bertin episode, um, in which I interviewed Kimberly Christman Campbell, you will recall the story of Marie Antoinette getting herself into a pickle for having herself painted by Elizabeth Vigue Lebrun in one of these dresses in 1783. And when this particular painting was exhibited, the dress was considered shockingly informal to anyone who saw it. In addition, the queen's patronage of foreign fabrics, as we mentioned earlier, these gowns were made of imported cotton and linen. This was especially upsetting to the French silk weavers of France. So needless to say, the portrait, deemed inappropriate and unpatriotic, well, it was immediately removed from the salon in which it was exhibited and replaced with a portrait of the queen in more acceptable attire. So while this controversial portrait might have been removed, the fashion for the chemise gown would absolutely remain. And the queen's endorsement of these radically simplified styles helped to ensure their staying power. And so also did the Anglomania that was gripping the nation during this period, affecting the styles of clothing that both men and women wore. So this hot trend for Anglomania, Cass, it may seem a little strange given that England and France were more or less mortal enemies for decades. But the late 18th century obsession in France for all things English had a connection with the perception that as a people, the English people, that they enjoyed a greater form of liberty from their government. Yeah, the lifestyle of the upper English classes differed a lot from that of the French. 
While French courtiers huddled around their monarch at court, seeking power and prestige amid clouds of silk and perfume, the English aristocracy enjoyed comparative freedom from their sovereign, preferring to reside at their ancestral estates, enjoying the pleasures of the hunt, and really the country life in general. And the influence of sportswear worn for these activities included riding jackets, hunting coats, etc., is at the root of the plainer styles preferred by the English in their everyday wear. So particularly in menswear, we see this, and uh, it established exceptional tailoring as a basis, Mm -hmm. somber color palettes, and less embellishment in general. Yeah. So the silhouettes of the styles of suits and dresses that the French and English were wearing may have been very, very similar, but the way that the English trimmed, embellished, and embroidered their garments or the very selection of their textiles, it actually differed a lot from the French. Let's just say that um, when it came to French taste, more was definitely more. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But (laughs) this being said, in the years leading up to the revolution, this plainer English style was increasingly adopted by the more avant-garde French trendsetters. Quote, soon, Paris will be completely English, wrote the Petit Dictionnaire de la Cour de Ville in 1788. Dress, carriages, hair, jewelry, drinks, entertainments, gardens, morals, everything is in the English style, end quote. Even before the revolution, we begin to see a shift away from the artificial styles that um, really defined Queen Marie Antoinette's era towards authenticity. So the hair powder falls out of favor. Comfort is increasingly valued in a way that it had just not been in Western fashion for centuries. So by the time the revolution does start, as we have seen, the ground has already been laid for the continuation of the simplification of dress um, that would be embraced throughout the ensuing years. And we will find out what happens next after a brief word from our sponsors. Okay. Are you ready, Cass? I think we're to the point now where we can really jump into the events which helped to shape the face of modern democracy and also, in conjunction, the equality in dress. Oh, boy. Um, I am ready if you are, April. Full steam ahead. Yeah, I'm about as ready as I'll ever be. (laughs) But (laughs) I should probably give our listeners a little bit of a heads up. We are going to mention a couple of rather gruesome events. So consider yourself full on forewarned. Gets a little intense, guys. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but uh, basically, if, if, if Anglomania and the popularity of the Enlightenment were any sort of indication, the revolution was born out of an atmosphere of widespread discontent. There was a lot of anti-royalist sentiment growing, and never before had the class divide been more apparent. As the French monarchy enjoyed a life of ease and luxury enclosed within the walls of Versailles and their private chateaus, the common people, a.k.a. the regular people, were fed up with being overtaxed and tired of their lack of representation in the government. And last but certainly not least, serious food shortages in light of bad harvests had resulted in a populace on the brink of starvation— And sensing trouble afoot, in May of 1789, King Louis XVI was prompted to call a meeting of the Estates General, something that had not happened in France for 175 years. So this was a big deal. And this meeting summoned representatives of the three estates. And these were the nobility, the clergy, 
and the commoners, all of whom were men, of course. Meaning and, the representatives of, uh, were men, not... Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> let's, let's just be clear. There were women in France. No women in politics <laughs> at this point. Correct. <laughs> the point of this convention was to try to work out a solution to the political unrest brewing in France. And it's right here from the very earliest seeds of the revolution that we see the ways in which dress had been historically used to define social classes within France. These, you know, three prongs, the three estates, if you will, um, were issued specific uniform dictates about how they should dress. And these were indicative of their status within the group. The fact that the nobility wore cloaks trimmed with gold and very expensive white feathers in their hats, this separated them visually from the clergy who wore their own vestments. Um, Vestments meaning the specific manner of dress of their own religious order. Then we have the third estate, comprised of the commoners, who made up the majority of France, mind you. And while they represented the lower classes in the social order, selected delegates of the third estate were overwhelmingly middle class. In other words, they were the bourgeoisie. So not necessarily the poorest of the poor. And basically the people who needed the most help were not really being represented here. I'm shocked. Wildly shocked. This doesn't happen anymore in contemporary governments at all. Nope. (laughs) But basically, um, the third estate, the representatives of the common people, they were instructed to wear black knee breeches and black capes to the convening of the estate general. So they were not allowed fancy trimmings, um, not to their three-cornered hats, not to their suits, and they were also not allowed to carry swords because at this time, the carrying of a sword was an aristocratic privilege and it was um, basically your symbol that you were a gentleman. So all these aristocratic male delegates are wearing finery and feathers and the trappings of their positions, whereas the plain styles, um, you know, in serious and very somber black, this is what was assigned to the third estate. Basically, the monarchy was making a very clear statement. And even here, it was being done through clothing. Yeah, so you can really understand why then that the clothing dictates imposed on the estates general was regarded by many with suspicion and resentment. These regulations reinforced the social hierarchies at root of the tensions to begin with. So from this point on, really, dress only continues to become an increasingly divisive topic of the revolution. So at the end of this meeting, when King Louis refused to meet the demands of the Third Estate, the more liberal delegates split off and formed a new political faction, the National Assembly. And this assembly charged itself with a litany of political reforms, including expanding civil rights, expanding financial reforms, and ultimately the abolition of the monarchy. And things really ramp up once the National Assembly, which was more or less led by commoners, not entirely, but but, but they were the majority, um, it established itself as a political force to be feared by the royalists. And with the storming of the Bastille prison, a symbol of royal tyranny, in July of 1789, the revolutionaries made their intentions clear. And um, a happy happenstance, they also happened to seize gunpowder and weapons that were necessary for their continued fight. Three months later, the Palace of Versailles was invaded by an angry mob led by pike-wielding market women fed up with the quality of the black fetid bread available to them. Can you imagine? 
Louis XVI, Marie Antoinette, and their children were taken to Tuileries Palace in Paris, where they remained for the next few years. Years. And for anyone who has seen Sofia Coppola's film, Marie Antoinette, this is the point where the film ends, with them in the carriage traveling to Paris, surrounded by soldiers. And April and I both adore this film and love Sofia's work in general, but the invasion of Versailles These scenes that she depicted, well, they were somewhat sanitized for the sake of the spirit of the film. In reality, this was an incredibly bloody event, and many of the guards were slaughtered, and it is said that at least one was decapitated, and his head was paraded about on a spike. Okay. Nope. (laughs) Yikes. I'm getting Game of Thrones flashbacks. All my Game of Thrones fans, we all know how devastating the end of season one was. This is a reality, and this is awful. This palace was trashed. It was ransacked. But this is but one reason that few of the known pieces of Marie Antoinette's clothing survive in museum collections today because people just stole everything. Yeah. And what happened next, really, you cannot downplay the revolutionary fervor that then seized the nation. Almost immediately, the palpable momentum towards democratic ideals begins to increasingly evidence its hand through fashion or anti-fashion. And as we will begin to see, clothing becomes increasingly democratized throughout the era as people sought to rid themselves of these distinctive class markers. Fashion, with Marie Antoinette as its queen or former queen, stood as a chief symbol of the monarchy's debauchery, its unapologetic and unbridled indulgence in luxury. Or maybe we should say perceived debauchery, because I think she gets a rough shake in light of her whole history. But but maybe that's a different episode. We'll dip into that. <laughs> we talk about that in Rosebird Tan right, just a little do. bit. <laughs> but some aristocratic women fearing the fineness of their clothing may betray their own royal ties, even went so far as to borrow garments from their servants in an effort to downplay their true stature. While many other women, including Madame Pompadour, who was the mistress of King Louis XV, Louis XVI's grandfather, well, they used these clothes to flee the country. They disguised themselves as servants to mask their true identity so that they could get out and save their lives. But this begs the question, April, if you can't wear all the fineries of prior France, what does one wear to the revolution? Well, I I struggle with what to wear every day when I wake up, so I don't even know what to wear to wartime. But um, if we are going to believe the fashion press of the era, um, the fashion magazine Journal de la Moda du Goût um, answered this question for men, at least, because in February of 1790, they wrote that men with democratic leanings were wearing, quote, black cloth suits a la Revolution. And these um, black suits were not necessarily unlike the costumes that had or uniforms that had been assigned to the representatives of the third estate. However, the devil here is really in the details. And even a somber black suit, it could actually be styled in a variety of ways that conveyed one's feelings about these, you know, the dangerous spirit of the times and the politics. You know, supporters of the revolutionary cause could pair their black suit with yellow or black knee breeches, whereas green knee breeches were worn by the royalists. A silk suit versus wool was also a matter of great debate. 
silk having long been a staple of the aristocracy. Did the gentleman prefer democratic boots over shoes, for instance, April? That's one thing to look for. And going even a step further, were those shoes closed by buckles of jewels or precious metal, or was it a sensible shoe with strings? So these are really the types of details that were clues to class, distinctions to wealth and status, despite the widespread acceptance of more informal styles of dress across the board. So you could really look at a person, and if you look closely enough, you could tell where their loyalties lie. I mean, if you really agonized over these types of decisions, perhaps you could take the advice of another fashion magazine of the era, Magazine de Mode Nouvelle, and you could eliminate any of confusion about your political stance by your footwear by adopting specific shoe buckles that were termed the style was called a la third estate. <laughs> and as you just alluded to a moment ago, Cass, colors of garments really took on a very deep meaning during the revolution. In March of 1790, the Journal de la Moda du Goutte wrote, quote, to show one's patriotism, adopt the colors of the nation. Hmm. I mean, you can't really get much more explicit than this. You know, the fashion magazines are flat out telling readers, express your politics through your clothing. And it's very fascinating to me how long these fashion magazines really survived throughout the revolution. I mean, that just tells you how important fashion is. I think Journal de la Mode de Goutte, it was absolutely the very last one to survive, but it, I think it ended in 1794, which was well into the revolution. Mm -hmm. So red, white, and blue now become colors de rigueur. The trifecta of colors was such a powerfully charged symbol of the democratic ideology of the revolution. And it was conceived as a merger of the will of the people, so symbolized by red and blue, which was the colors of Paris, with that of the monarchy, and white was the color of the Bourbon royalty. So at this early stage in the revolution, which is where we currently are, the hope was that a constitutional monarchy might be established with expanded rights and roles for French citizens within the government. Yeah, so basically red white and blue striped ribbons and sashes explode onto the fashion scene. And there were also any number of red, white, and blue feather trimmed hats. You know, for instance, female supporters of the revolutionary cause might adopt dresses embroidered with red, white, and blue flowers, or perhaps don a very smart blue jacket with red embellishment and then wear this over a white, one of the very popular white linen dresses. Um, and then we start to see very specific styles of clothing that are now given very pointed political names, such as a la Bastille or a la Constitution. And, and for some patriots, their enthusiasm for the revolutionary cause even extended into the jewelry that they were wearing. I love this one story of a, a, a Madame Jeanne who commissioned a locket to be made from stones taken from the Bastille. Other women wore um, kind of more simplified forms of jewelry enameled with red, white, and blue. Alternately to um, these women who were um, siding with the commoners and the revolt remained the royalists in the early years of the revolution and loyalists to the royal family. And those people might choose a white dress decorated with delicate white fleur-de-lis patterns so subtle as to almost not be detected. And the fleur-de-lis, of course, was a symbol of the French crown. Likewise, supporters of the male crown and females alike may also have chosen to grandstand with a pure white ribbon cockade. So they're making a very clear statement. 
And let me tell you, I cannot believe how much steak people put into these things. A cockade is essentially a circular brooch. It's composed of ribbon, and people lost their minds over them. This is an incredibly potent political statement. Yeah, I know, because because there was really a deeper meaning behind the wearing of the cockade, which is also sometimes in French called it cocard, when, with an R instead of a K in it. Um, and um, while you, Cass, just mentioned the white royalist cockades, more commonly, the cockade was worn by patriots to the revolution, and it was worn in the national colors of red, white, and blue. And, and it was worn because it was emblematic of the wearer's support for the revolutionary cause, and typically, people wore them at a variety of ways. But I would say the most common ways was that they were worn in lapels mm-hmm. or on hats. And at some point in the revolution, the wearing of the cockade was even legally mandated, even if you happen to be a foreign visitor, which I think is very interesting. Fashion historian Valerie Still has called the tricolor cockade the revolution's, quote, most patriotic badge which makes the fact that shortly after the storming of the Bastille, King Louis was cajoled to accept one in public at the hands of government officials, well, the new government officials, I should say, which was all the more humiliating to the monarch. This certainly was meant to force Louis' acknowledgement of the shifting political landscape and was an attempt to convey the monarchy's quote-unquote sympathy for the people's dispute. But this did not sit very well with his wife, Marie Antoinette, who immediately following this incident declared something or another to the effect of, I did not know that I married a commoner. (laughs) Um, But she herself actually soon relented to the pressure to wear the tricolors um, when she ordered 16 yards of red, white, and blue ribbon from the couturier, Madame Aloff, in 1790. And at this period of the revolution, despite the fact that she was a quasi-prisoner in the Tuileries Palace, she was still allowed to patronize her favorite fashion purveyors, including Rose Bertin. Yes, Kimberly and I discussed this in the Rose Bertin episode. If you think about it, it's quite interesting because despite being in captivity, there is this period when the royal court was still allowed to uphold many of their customs and their rituals and their captors. I'm guessing we're not quite sure what they were doing with them yet. Yeah. And and basically what's happening at this point is people are wearing their political allegiances quite literally on their sleeve. So, so it is no wonder that dress um, becomes this increasingly divisive topic. I mean, it could now at this point be downright dangerous in some cases. Okay, Cass, I know this sounds preposterous, but what if you were just minding your own business, walking down the street one day, and all of a sudden somebody rushed up on you and beat you within an inch of your life just because of the color that you were wearing? Yeah, this reality is absolutely horrific. But this is actually what was happening. There are so, so, so many accounts of violence resulting from disputes over clothing worn during the French Revolution, um, particularly over the cockade, um, disputes over how they should be worn. Should it be worn on the left? Should it be worn on the right? What did it mean if it was partially obscured by your scarf or a ribbon on your hat? I mean, was this? Did this mean that you were attempting to signal your, you know, clandestine support for the monarchy? You know, were you wearing a silk cockade versus a wool one? People got so frenzied oh, over man. this topic. <laughs> 
that there were literally physical altercations in the streets. Don't leave your house (laughs) during this period. Exactly. And it even got made a gender issue too. You know, some people believe that women should not be allowed to wear the cockade because it was a symbol of democracy. And if they wore it, this would mean that the revolutionaries would also have to grant women equal rights. (laughs) Yeah, We've addressed this. Yeah, (laughs) we're not going to harp on it again. We're just putting it out there for you guys today. The cockade was not the only item of clothing to induce the anger of anti-royalists. The types of clothing formerly associated with the aristocracies, those wide-skirted robe a la française, robe a la américaine, robe a la anglaise, for instance, made up of those exquisite patterned silks and laces and embroidery, well, it was indicative of this greater chasm which separated the aristocracy from the struggling majority. So the somber seeds of eglomania that had been sown in menswear before the revolution finally grows into maturity during this period, and the trajectory of menswear forever shifts away from ostentation, never really to return. So before the French Revolution, men are wearing silk, they're wearing these elaborately embroidered, beautiful garments in all sorts of colors, The reason why men's suits have become gray, black, and navy for the last 200 plus years, well, you can thank the French Revolution for that. And the psychologist Carl Flugel called this shedding of the ornamentation in menswear the great masculine renunciation. In 1792, John Moore, a doctor who was living in Paris at the time, wrote, quote, a great affectation of plainness in dress and simplicity of expression that are supposed to belong to the Republicans. He goes on about an encounter that he has at the theater with a, quote, young man of one of the first families of France, a violent Democrat. He's wearing boots, his hair is cropped, and his whole dress slovenly. On this being taken note of, Reportedly, the young gent said that he was accustoming himself to appearing like a Republican. (laughs) I love this because it's basically saying that it was a political statement to look like a very hot, hot mess. Yeah, and I want to know how I can bring this back. Like, when I go out to walk Gigi, I wear some bizarre outfits, and how can we make this ultra fashionable? (laughs) My life would be so much easier, but we digress. Um, basically, this association of uh, revolutionary ideology with an unkempt appearance, at least for men, this may come in part from this working class faction known as the sans-culottes, or in French, without breeches. And these sans-culottes, they played a huge part in the storming of the Bastille. Okay, I think I am not alone when I say I'm currently envisioning a horde of gun-carrying men storming the Bastille prison Naked completely from the waist down. (laughs) Okay, we're going to have to investigate that uh, a little further after we come back from this sponsor break. Okay, Cass, where were we? You're going to have to remind me. I was was questioning why you were thinking something. Yes, you were going to address my immediate image about the sans-culotte that included a horde of pantless Uh men. Oh, yes. Pantless (laughs) men. So perhaps I should clarify. They were indeed wearing pants. They had on garments um, covering their lower bodies. They just weren't knee breeches. So these men, as I said, were working class, um, kind of more 
lower working class specifically. And they were called sans-culottes because of the long, loose trousers that they wore. Um, And these loose pants were in contrast to this skin-tight knee breeches worn by the aristocracy and many members of the bourgeoisie. Um, You know, the irony here being, of course, that this act of rebellion would soon become the defining feature of menswear into the present day. You know, the wearing of (laughs) trousers, a.k.a. pants. Men, I know, I don't know. I mean, men embracing capris has slowly come back, I feel like, in recent years. But yes, men have overwhelmingly adopted trousers. (laughs) I'm, I'm going on record here and saying I'm a fan of the romp him. And if anybody doesn't know what that is, it's these little cute rompers for men. I think they're adorable. <laughs> My partner refuses, despite the fact that he's a fashion guy. Nope, not having it. Anyway. So during the revolution, this was the Psalms Collot, was an incredibly poignant example of dress being quite literally used to express your political alliance. Just the fact that this group of men is named after the very style of clothing they wore is incredibly fascinating. Yeah, so a lot of these political factions at the time, they self-identified and and identified outwardly through their styles of dress. You know, we know what the song culottes were wearing, thanks in part to lots of illustrations from the era. But um, one of my favorite examples is this wonderful painting by Louis-Leopold Boyi. And you can look it up online. We'll probably post it on Instagram, I'm sure. Um, But the painting itself, it lives in the Musée Carnavalet in Paris, and it dates to 1792. So this is the exact, the painting is from the exact part of the revolution that we're now talking about. Um, And the Saint-Colat, he's wearing these dark gray, very loose trousers. They're way too short. They they hit several inches above his ankles. And likewise, the trousers are paired with this kind of nut brown colored jacket that's very loose around the waist. It has cuffs that hit him at the middle of the forearm. And and this is not necessarily a sartorial choice, but it's very obvious that this is a result of ill-fitting clothing. It's really interesting because it actually sounds like that is highly probable that your subject's clothing was not made specifically for him, but was rather something that he had purchased secondhand. Yes, exactly. Like, in all of his clothing, you can see it in the painting. It shows signs of rigorous wear. And really what this is, is it's a very poignant reminder that only a tiny fraction of the French populace was able to participate in high fashion. Lower classes, um, you know, which were really comprised of the Saint-Colat, they were obliged to make their own clothing or to buy it secondhand. And Buying secondhand clothing at this time during the 18th century, let's just say um, there was there was a lot of lack of sanitary standards. Perhaps it <laughs> Not probably a was experience. No. <laughs> As you mentioned, April, this favorite sans culotte painting of yours is from 1792, and this is. It might have been a good year for the sans culotte, but it is not exactly a great year for the royal family. After a failed attempt to escape France. Things took a decidedly bad turn for them. What had started out as a somewhat amicable um, captivity in the Tuileries Palace, it well, it turned increasingly dark and humiliating. In June of 1792, a mob forced the king to toast the revolution in public wearing the bonnet rouge, this being a red hat that resembled something of a long oversized beret. These hats were highly symbolic, they were derived from the Phrygian caps worn by emancipated slaves in ancient Rome. They were worn as a symbol of their freedom. Likewise, in the French Revolution, 
hardcore revolutionaries adopted this as a symbol of their freedom from the tyranny of the monarchy. And although there is some dispute as to whether the ones worn in antiquity were red or not, um, but that's not terribly important, I suppose. It's the thought. It's not. It's not terribly important, especially in light of the story that I'm getting ready to tell you now. Um, so kind of the next big thing that happens, I'm not even really sure if I want to talk about this, um, but it is very important to understand the level of violence that was taking place in the name of freedom and the revolution. Um, and this is grisly. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> so although the queen's head of household and her very absolute closest confidant and friend, Princess de Lamballe, she had initially been housed with Marie Antoinette in the Tuileries Palace. Lamballe was later relocated to La Force Prison. And like Marie Antoinette, her love of fashion and excess was very well publicly known. And this made her an easy scapegoat for the Queen's perceived fiscal malfeasance. So while in prison in La Force, Lamballe becomes the victim of a horrific slaughter that became known as the September Massacres. Mm. Her murder at the hands of an angry mob was exceptionally brutal. She was basically decapitated and her head placed on a spike. Okay, what is with the head on the spike? I, I don't, don't know. get it. I don't and know. And this is something that repeatedly happened during this period. I mean, I just, I don't understand it. I've read accounts of the people who were doing this, and some of them even went as far to force hairdressers to style the hair on these decapitated heads and put makeup on their faces. This is beyond disturbing. Yeah. This is the when kind I of stuff that you can't, you literally cannot believe a human being is capable of. This is horrific. I know. And I feel like when I first started reading about these things, I was like, I couldn't get it. Out. I could not get that like mental picture out of my head for days. It still lingers there. Um, and if you don't like that, you're probably mm. not going to like any more um, what happens next. <laughs> I'm thrilled. Please proceed. <laughs> so having the princess's head on this spike, it was basically paraded through these, you know, raucous streets of of Paris that were like exploding rough revolution and it was marched to the Tuileries Palace and there it was displayed before the windows of the royal family's apartments. Upon seeing this, it is said that Marie Antoinette fainted immediately. Well, there's some dispute as to whether she actually saw it or others saw and quickly shielded the queen from seeing Lamballe's head on the spike. Antonia Fraser, um, in her book on Marie Antoinette, kind of takes this latter stance, but it doesn't really matter. Basically, when the queen found out, she dead faded. I mean, can you imagine this? Your best friend, one of your best friends. I, I mean, this is something straight out of a horror film. And far from the last loss that Marie Antoinette would suffer, a few days later, the monarchy was abolished. So they, her and her husband and her family, they were officially stripped of their royal titles. And in January of 1793, so three and a half years after being forcibly removed from Versailles, her husband, the former king, was put to death by guillotine for crimes against the state. So this is really the beginning of the so-called reign of terror, which began in the late summer of 1793, the last remaining bastion of the French fashion press, Journal de la Mode et du Goût, ceased operations as the country begins to unravel at the hands of the Jacobin Party, led by Maximilien de Robespierre. 
the man referred to not so affectionately as the world's first terrorist. But I don't know if I really buy into this exactly, cast because I feel like there were probably plenty of bloodthirsty megalomaniacs who preceded him oh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> but the point is that Robespierre and the Jacobin Party, which had seized control of the country, adopted a scorched earth policy. Enemies of the state, meaning aristocrats, supporters of the royalist cause, and any of their other political enemies, which also included the clergy of France, they were slaughtered by the thousands. During the revolution, more than 17,000 people were put to death, either by the quote-unquote national razor, the guillotine. Oh, God. Yeah, or by this also equally terrifying series of forced drownings where victims' hands and feet were bound before they were tossed into the sea. And approximately another 10,000 people simply died in prison. I can't with this. This is very upsetting. These public mass executions by way of the guillotine could not help but permanently emblaze themselves in the public consciousness. I mean, people did show up en masse to see these people murdered. I'm just having you say it was a public event. Mm. Well, and, you know, blood's running in the street. <laughs> it, it was, yeah. And one of the most bizarre and macabre trends in the history of fashion presents itself during this period, and that is guillotine jewelry. I know. I can never quite make up my mind how I feel about these pieces. On one hand, I'm kind of fascinated by their macabre nature. It's incredibly dark. <laughs> and on the other hand, I'm like, why? Are they trying to work something out vis-a-vis -vis these pieces of jewelry? But they do actually still exist. There are a few rare pieces in museum collections in France. Um, you know, and one period source at the time wrote, quote, women and young girls wore golden and silver guillotines and pins, brooches, combs, and even earrings. Whoa. So just before its demise, the fashion magazine Journal de la Mode de Goutte commented on the continued pursuit of novelty, saying... Quote, in spite of the war, our internal turmoil, and the political movements of all of Europe, the taste of women for adornment is as lively as ever, end quote. And this may seem a bit counterintuitive that fashion should live on despite the daily atrocities of the reign of terror, but this innate human desire to express oneself through dress is really difficult to get rid of. And even Marie Antoinette, who endured cruelty after cruelty during the latter portion of her imprisonment. Well, she still attempted to take great care with her appearance. She changed from a white cotton gown in the morning to a brown linen dress during the afternoon. To me, one of the most heart-wrenching tales in the history of fashion cast is the fact that she even managed to hide away in her cell one clean gown ostensibly to wear to her own execution. There is this a sketch um, by uh, the artist David. Um, he, he happened to see her in the street being taken away on, um, you know, to be executed in October of 1793. And it depicts her in this long, white, kind of chemise-style gown, a simple starched cap covering her gray hair, which had been cut off short in preparation for the National Razor's Kiss. So we all know what happened. And with the death of the Queen of Fashion... An era really came to an end. But fashion did not die. It will be born anew at the hands of fashion's first hipsters, the Encroyable and the Marvilleuse, whose shocking styles were the source of awe and delight during the final years of the revolution and into the directory. And we will hear more about them next week. 
Until then, we suggest you consider the ways in which politics and fashion intersect in your wardrobe today, next time you get dressed. As always, for images pertaining to each week's episode, please follow us on Instagram at dressed underscore podcast. This is also our Twitter handle, and you can find us on Instagram at dressed podcast without the underscore. And please be sure to check out our merch store. And that would be at www.tpublic.com backslash dressed. And also, don't forget, because we get lots of listener emails asking for um, uh, books to read, um, and and we love hearing from you guys, so keep that coming. But please remember that we do, with each and every episode, we recommend thematic readings um, on our website at www.dressedpodcast.com. And last but certainly not least, a huge thank you to our producers, Holly Fry and Casey Pigram and everyone else at How Stuff Works who makes the show possible each week. Catch you soon. 